Today we have an enemy that is well skilled at attacking us with his various schemes. And if we're not careful, we leave our flank open and we allow ourselves to be uh, a little more susceptible to those attacks. And there are seven main weapons that he uses against us on a daily basis. Uh, they what have been come to know, be known as the seven deadly sins. So wrath and envy and lust and greed and, and gluttony and sloth and pride, all of these things that the enemy uses to attack us. And we can make caricatures out of those things. In fact, maybe you, you didn't realize this, but Sherwood, uh, Sherwood Schwartz, who is the director and the creator of the show Gilligan's Island. Some of you have no clue what Gilligan's Island is, but some of you know about Gilligan's Island. Gilligan's Island represented each individual, uh, represented one of the seven deadly sins. And so he created an atmosphere where he wanted to see what it would look like with these individuals confined into a space. In fact, the island represented hell. And so the, the professor was pride and Mary Ann was envy. Uh, uh, Ginger was lust. Mr. Howe was greed. Who else takes a treasure trunk of cash with them on a three-hour tour? Mrs. Howe represented gluttony. She was always stealing stuff. She was a kleptomaniac. If you remember the show, she was always stealing stuff. The skipper was, was wrath, uh, and obviously Gilligan was sloth, although in later interviews, he said that actually that Gilligan represented Satan. And he was the one that every time they would try to get off of the island, it would be something that Gilligan did that prevented them from getting off of the island. If we're not careful, we make caricatures out of these deadly weapons that the enemy uses against us each and every day. And so what I want us to do is to look at each one of these deadly weapons, these deadly sins that the enemy uses against us so that we can be better prepared to know these various schemes that he uses and how we can combat them and find victory in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we, we, we see that uh, it's beneficial for us in naming our sins, to allow the Holy Spirit to search us and to see what those sins are in our lives. In fact, naming our sins is the confessional uh, counterpart to counting our blessings. It's good for us to count our blessings, but it's also spiritually beneficial for us to also name our sins and allow the Holy Spirit to do spiritual surgery in our lives. And so today we're going to begin our series looking at the deadly sin of envy, the deadly sin of envy. And we're going to be in Matthew's gospel, the, the 20th chapter, looking at verses 1 through 16 in a message titled, Why Not Me? So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew 20. And find verse 1, we're going to be looking at the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And we're going to see at the heart of this is an individual that comes to have envy rooted into his heart. And we're going to see what envy can do to each and every one of us. This may be a sin that we kind of gloss over in our lives, that don't see the insidious nature of it and can make light of it. But we will see that envy will cause great destruction in your life, great destruction in your relationships, 
and great, great destruction ultimately uh, with your walk with the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and we thank you. We praise you. You are a good and a merciful God. Heavenly Father, we know that there is an enemy that prowls around. He's like a lion that is looking for somebody to devour. And gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, there are things in our lives that give him a foothold. And Lord, we pray against those things in the name of Jesus. Help us as we study your word. Help us to grow in our relationship with our Lord. Help us, Heavenly Father, to grow in the ability to fight against the attacks of the enemy through the armor of God that you have supplied for us and through the truth we find in your word, the victory that has been secured for us by Jesus Christ. Lord, help us. If there is any ounce of envy in our hearts or our lives, Lord, I pray you would remove it from us today and help us guard against it in the future. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, when you read verses 1 through 16 of Matthew 20, it's a parable that Jesus is speaking of a vineyard owner that goes out and on the, the, the early morning brings in some workers to work his vineyard for denarius that day. Now, the Jews counted their day uh, from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And so he goes out at 6 a.m. and he hires some workers to come into the vineyard. And then he goes out at 9 a.m. and he brings in some more individuals. Then he goes out at noon and he brings in some more individuals. And then he goes out at 5 p.m. and he brings in some individuals. So some individuals work 12 hours. Some individuals work 9 hours. Some individuals work 6 hours. And some individuals only worked 1 hour. And then when the day came to a conclusion, the vineyard owner came and lined up everybody from the one that worked 1 hour all the way to the one that worked 12 hours, and he started to give them their day's wage. And the one that worked one hour got a denarius, and the one that worked uh, uh, six hours got a denarius, and the one that worked nine hours got a denarius. So the ones that had worked all 12 hours are thinking, we're surely going to get more than everybody else because we have worked in the vineyard much longer than everybody else. But when he came to the individuals on the 12th hour, he gave them one denarius. And the individual that had worked for 12 hours thought that that was completely unfair and responds to the vineyard owner in that light and tells him, you basically have done me wrong. And the vineyard owner responds to him and says that I've done no wrong to you. You agreed that you would work a day for a denarius and that's exactly what it is that you have been given. And he started to compare himself with the other vineyard workers. And at the heart of envy, what the enemy loves to get us to do is to compare. Compare our lives with other individuals' lives. Compare what we have with what other individuals have. And what we will see is the very destructive nature of envy will cause great separation in and among yourselves, great separation with you and others, and great separation with you and God. So when we talk about envy, envy can rear its ugly head maybe when you get into someone's car that's a lot nicer than yours. Maybe envy rears its head when you go over to somebody's house to have dinner and you see that their house is so much nicer than yours. It's immaculately kept. It's in a luxurious neighborhood. And you start to have that sense of envy start to well up inside of you. 
Envy can be when somebody is on Facebook or Instagram and they have gone to a vacation destination that you would absolutely love to go. Or maybe it's an individual that didn't go on vacation and they were able to pay off their debt as a result. And you haven't been to va on vacation in years and you are still paying down a lot of debt. Envy can be when you look at a family and you think that that family has absolutely everything together. Or you can look at somebody who's able to uh, have a family by the grace of God and you, you don't. Maybe you're single and you see somebody in a relationship that you want to have that relationship as well. Maybe it's a magazine cover or a movie or a TV show where you see somebody who you wish you had their body or their physique or their looks. Maybe envy can well up in your heart when you see somebody at work who, according to you, is less talented, puts in less hours, and yet they get the promotion. I'm married to a teacher, so maybe for some of you in here, it's when you see the teacher's classroom next to you at the beginning of the year when they set it up and how their classroom looks and what that, what that is like. Envy can root itself in our hearts in so many different ways. And what happens is the enemy comes and starts to speak into our hearts and into our lives and say, why not you? Why not you? Why don't, why don't you have that car? Why don't you have that house? Why didn't you get to go on that vacation? Why don't you get to pay off your debt? Why, why don't you look like that? Why, why didn't you get that promotion? And our flesh can sink its teeth in that to agree with the lies of the enemy to say, yeah, why, why not me? Why don't I have those things? Why aren't all those things a reality in in my life, and the, the, the sin of envy's favorite words are, why not me? Why not me? I, I deserve so much more. In fact, the individual that has that life that I look at or has those things that, that I look at that got that promotion, really, they're only living their life to a fraction of the degree that if you had that life, you would live it to. You would live that life so much better. In fact, that life is being wasted on that individual because if you had it, you would live that life to the fullest of its capacity. They're only tapping into a portion of what it is, and the enemy will get us to think that we could do so much more if God would just be more generous to us. That's at the heart of envy. And what we see is in this passage of Scripture that envy causes us to see life as a ripoff that we've been sold the bill of goods, that we've been given a lemon that is broken down on us as soon as we have driven off of the lot, that life is a ripoff. That's what this individual is saying in the vineyard. He agreed to a certain amount to, for a day's wage, and at that end of the day when he got that exact wage, he saw that everybody else got what he thought he should have got more of, and he felt like he got ripped off. And envy will always try to convince us that we are getting ripped off in life. But we see in verses 13 and 14 of Matthew 20, we see that the response to this individual by the vineyard owner is this. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. You agreed to work for a certain wage and you've been given that wage. I I've done you no wrong. But envy causes us to take our eyes off of the generous and good daily bread that God puts into our hands, despise it, 
and focus in on all of the gifts, the talents, the treasures, and resources that he puts in the hands of somebody else. He said, I've done you no wrong. In the Christian faith, sometimes we have this idea that we place our faith in Jesus Christ and then everything is supposed to be perfect, that we get the bigger house. Individuals preach this. Individuals say, look, if you sow that seed, it is going to bear this fruit to you. And if you give your best, then you will have your best. You'll have that big house. You'll get that promotion. You'll have that nice car. You'll have great health. You'll have all of these different types of things. But Jesus does not promise us that in Scripture. Jesus says that when you come to me, what it looks like when you come to me is you've got to die to yourself, you've got to pick up your cross, and you've got to follow me. And you will have trials and you will have tribulations in this world, but fear not, for I have overcome the world. He said, I haven't ripped you off. No matter where you are in life, the enemy will try to get you to think that God has ripped you off if you're not exactly where it is you think you should be or have exactly what it is you think you should have. But God hasn't promised you any of that. But he has promised you to forgive you of your sins. He has promised you to make you a new creation in Christ Jesus. He has promised you to renew your mind. He has promised to give you eternal life. And he does not lie. He will not remove those things from you. And so he has done no wrong to us. In fact, just the opposite. Because what we actually deserve is eternal hell. That's what we deserve for our sin. But because he is gracious, he gives us so much more. Now we also see that there's a misrepresentation of what that reward is. See, the reward is that we get to participate in the vineyard. The reward is that we get to have access to the vineyard. The reward is that we get to come into the vineyard. We were outside of the vineyard. We were outside of God's kingdom. And we were brought into God's kingdom by nothing that we have done in and of ourselves. Look, the reward is that we get to participate in the kingdom of God. We want to make it about so much more in this life that the rewards ought to be these earthly possessions. But the truth of the matter is that the reward of being a follower of Jesus Christ is that we get to be a part of God's kingdom. We get to be his ambassadors. We have access to God Almighty as his children. That is the reward. But the enemy tries to get us to put our focus on so much other things. But look what happens in the second half in verse 14. It says, take what belongs to you and go. Envy will always lead to exile. Envy will always cause exile. Exile from ourselves, exiles from others and community, and ultimately exile from God and his kingdom. It will always lead to exile. Take what is yours and go. In other words, you don't get to stick around for dinner. You don't get to have community with the other workers. You don't get to stay in the vineyard. You don't get to be a participant in the vineyard. And tomorrow, when there's more work to be done, you don't get to participate in that either. So take your stuff and go. Think about Adam and Eve. The sin of envy that they wanted to be God led to exile out of Eden. Think about their children, Cain and Abel. Cain's envy over Abel's offering led him to murder Abel and cause further separation from God and exile. Think about Jacob and Esau. When Jacob envied his birthright and he stole his birthright, what happened to Jacob? He had to flee. Think about Joseph and his brothers. His brothers envied him and they threw him in a pit and he was taken away. Think about Satan himself. 
He wanted to become God. He wanted to sit on the throne of God. He envied the position of God, and he was cast out of heaven. Envy will always lead to exile. Treating our lives as if they were nothing more than a ripoff, we are exiled from the presence of God deeper and deeper because of that envy. In verses 15 through 16, the vineyard owner says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? I mean, this is a picture of God talking to Job. Where, where were you? Why are you questioning me? Where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I spoke everything into existence? Where were you when I told the mountains how high they would go and the seas how far they could go? Where, where were you? And the vineyard owner says, why is it that you think I'm not allowed to do with what belongs to me? God has given each and every one of us gifts according to his sovereignty. He is over those things, and he gives them as he pleases. And then it goes on to say, or do you begrudge my generosity? Now, that word begrudge is, is something that we don't usually say very often. Uh, I know I don't usually use that word, but in, in various translations, it's translated a little bit differently. In the NIV, it says, are you envious because of my generosity? In that New King James Version, it says, is your eye evil because of my generosity? In the NASB, it says, is your eye envious? And really, it's an idiom. That word begrudge is an idiom that was used in the days of Jesus to talk about the evil eye. Not like what your mama would give you when, when you're acting up. My mama still gives it to me to this day. Not talking about that, but that we look at individuals through a lens, a fleshly lens that says that we're more deserving than they are. Now, this word is used in the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It is found in a passage of scripture in 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 9. In 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 9, God's word says this. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. That is that word, eyed, that is translated in Matthew 21, 15. It says, begrudged. And here we see that Saul has come back from getting a victorious battle over the Philistines. And instead of rejoicing over the fact that God's people have been delivered from God's enemies, he hears the chants of the women that are lifting higher the name of David over his own name. And he can't celebrate, he can't rejoice, he can't enjoy the victory that God gave them over the Philistines because he was too busy evil-eyeing David. You see, oftentimes... We want to make envy synonymous with jealousy, but they're really two different things. Jealousy is about the haves. It's something that you have. It's something or someone that you have that you're afraid of losing. That's jealousy. Think of Gollum in the Lord of the Rings. Envy is the have-nots. There's something that I don't have that somebody else has 
some kind of acclaim, some kind of status, some kind of reward, some, some, some kind of accolade that I want. I don't necessarily want the possession. I want all of the attention and the focus that the possession brings to that other individual. And what happens if we're not careful is that envy will cause us to see others as rivals. Not as companions, not, not as uh, image bearers of God Almighty, but as rivals, as individuals we have to compete against. And it caused great separation and division between others. And I've seen so many times where even in various churches that this is what takes place and a church is split or a church has caused all kinds of turmoil and pain because somebody else sees somebody who is their brother in Christ or their sister in Christ, they see them more as a rival than they see them as an individual who can come alongside and help grow the kingdom of God. And we do this in all kinds of areas and in all kinds of ways in life. And the enemy loves to cause division. But what does Christ do? He brings us together. There's a great movie, uh, it was released in 1984, so a so long, long time ago. It was a great movie that really speaks to the heart of envy. It's called Amadeus. And it's about a composer named Solari and his supposed rivalry with uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Now, really, the rivalry is only one-sided, but Solari desires to have what it is that Mozart has, but he can never obtain and the very first time that he meets him, he sees that he will never have what it is that Mozart had. So instead of coming and learning from Mozart and trying to, to grow in his own craft and his own ability, he decides he wants to destroy Mozart. See, a lot of times, envy, what it does is it stunts our growth to where we don't try to grow and become better. What we want to do is we want to cut the legs out from somebody else so they grow smaller so it looks like we're better. And it causes us to attack individuals instead of learning and growing and seeing what is it that they do that I could apply to my life. Because envy will always convince us that people have these things without any problems and it just comes naturally and easy to them. The devil will always convince us that we're the only ones with struggles, we're the only ones with problems, that we look on the outside and we see these individuals and we see this perfect life, but we don't know what happens behind closed doors. We don't know about the insecurities that they struggle with. We don't know about the pain that they've endured throughout their life. We don't know about any of those things, but the enemy will try to convince us that everything in their life is perfect. And the reason why everything in your life is not is either because you're at fault or because God is at fault. And ultimately, here's the greatest destructive power of envy. Envy causes us to see God as worthy of rejection. Because he's the one that's ripped us off. He's the one that sold us a bill of goods. He's the one that has given us a limit. It's God's fault. If he really loved me, he would give me everything that he gave somebody else. If he really cared for me, he would have given me the talents. He would have given me the resources. He would have given me what it is that he gave this other individual. He would have given me those things. And one of the greatest and saddest depictions of envy in all of Scripture we find in 1 Samuel 8. In 1 Samuel 8, verses 4 through 5, God's word says this, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, 
Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So they took their eyes off of the precious, generous, godly, gracious daily bread that they had been given. And they started to look at what everybody else had. And they said, we want what everybody else has. And they despised what it is that God had given them. Now, ultimately, they were not rejecting the daily bread that had been placed into their hands. They weren't rejecting what it is that God had given them. Ultimately, they were rejecting God himself. And we see that play out uh, much more concisely in the following verses. 1 Samuel 8, 6-7 says, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. You see, envy's ultimate gripe is not with the perceived rival. It may seem that way in our mind, but ultimately, envy's greatest gripe is with God Almighty because he hasn't given you what it is he's been given to the perceived rival in your life. And so what happens is we reject the God-given life that has been so graciously given to us to say that it's not good. That God could have and should have done more for me. And we turn into Veruca from Charlie uh, and the Chocolate Factory. And we become spiritual brats. And we just think that everything ought to be given to us the moment that we say it. And if we don't get it, then we are going to throw a spiritual temper tantrum and fine. Then I, I won't read my Bible. Fine. I'm not going to pray. Fine. I'm not going to be uh, involved in church. Fine. I'm not going to serve in any kind of way because you didn't give me what I think I rightfully deserve. That's envy. And ultimately what you're doing is you're not rejecting the life that God has given you. You're rejecting the giver of that life. You're rejecting God. And envy will convince you that you're right in doing so. And how tragic that is that we find ourselves separated from the one who has given us everything that we need. He's good. And he's gracious. Stop comparing your life to other individuals. So how is it that we combat this? How is it that we come against all of these attacks that the enemy uses through envy. Well, I think that all of the seven deadly sins find an antidote in the Beatitudes. What we've come to know is the Beatitudes found in Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is saying, be these attitudes. That the life of a follower of Christ, the, the life is flipped upside down and, and we need to have these attitudes, be these attitudes. And in Matthew 5, 4, I think we find the antidote for envy. In Matthew 5, 4, God's word says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now you say, how in the world is this an antidote for envy? Well, sin mourns over what we don't have, what the flesh is lacking, what, what we perceive the world uh, uh, would give us as far as status and accolades and those different types of things. But what Jesus is talking about is the opposite of how sin mourns. Sin mourns through envy. Sin mourns through, I want more. I don't have more. But what true spiritual mourning of a follower of Jesus Christ looks like is not mourning over what we don't have, but it's mourning over what it is that we have that separates us from God. 
that we mourn over those things, that we don't look and compare our lives to anybody else. We compare our lives to Jesus Christ, who is perfect, and we see that we fall short of the glory of God. We see that we have sinned, and that sin is what Jesus Christ died on the cross for, and so we mourn, and guess what we find as a result of our mourning? Comfort. That our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ comforts us, and that is the very grace of God. And so mourning shows us the grace of God. He shows us, our morning shows us how gracious our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. How gracious that our God is. And where envy kills relationships and causes division or prevents relationships from ever being established because we play the comparison game and we put people at different levels and we're standing on different levels of ground, at the foot of the cross we find level ground. That everybody comes to the foot of the cross and they are on level ground. And they, A, find the grace of God just like you find the grace of God. And so it doesn't cause division, it causes unity. In fact, that's exactly what the church is. It's a community built around the cross. What brings us together? It shouldn't be our socioeconomic background. It shouldn't be our hobbies. It shouldn't be our race. It shouldn't be any of those things of why it is that we gather together in this place to worship God Almighty. The thing that brings us together, even though we have different backgrounds and different experiences, different ethnicities, different, different anything, different hobbies, whatever the case may be, different sports teams that we pull for, the thing that pulls us together and brings unity within the body of Christ is the cross of Christ because that's where we see the love of God. God poured out and manifested in a greater capacity than we've ever seen before. And we are unified by the fact we're all sinners saved by grace. Amen? That's it. That's the reality of what grace does for us. And when we mourn over our sins, where sin's greatest words are, why not me? The greatest words in Christian unity is me too. Me too. You're a sinner saved by grace? Me too. You falter and you stumble and you fail, me too. You've experienced the comfort of God, embrace you and bring you in even though you've struggled and fallen and stumbled, me too. That's the beauty of the cross. We see the grace of God and therefore unity is established. And as a result of that, how should we respond? If we find comfort in our mourning, then we see that mourning establishes a grateful heart within us. We experience the grace of God, and so now we're grateful because you know what? I don't deserve anything God has blessed me with. At the foot of the cross, I see that I'm wretched and I'm depraved and I am a sinner, and it's only by the sheer grace of God that I've been forgiven of those sins, and so now I am grateful for everything it is that God has given me. Every aspect of the life that I've been given ought to be grateful for. Because God didn't, uh, didn't owe me any of that. I didn't deserve that. I wasn't worthy of that. But yet I am welcome to it because God has generously given it to me. Now, let me tell you something. It is hard to be envious of what others have when you're grateful for what you have. When you are grateful for what it is that God has blessed you with, it's almost impossible to be envious for what somebody else has. So we come, and we come to the cross, we see God's grace, and so then we see uh, uh, how gracious he is, and so we respond with a grateful heart. Grateful that we have access to the vineyard. Grateful that we have a relationship with the vineyard owner. Grateful that we can participate in the work of the vineyard. 
grateful that we have the title of worker of the vineyard, that we are children of God, that we're grateful for that. So even if we don't have the house we want, even if we don't have the car we want, even if we don't get to go on the vacations that we want, you still have eternal life found in Christ Jesus. Is that not enough? Can we not at least be grateful for that? And if we can be grateful for the reality that Jesus Christ has secured for us, forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation with a perfect and a holy God, then you know what? It doesn't matter what anybody else has. They will stand before God and give an account for what it is that they've been given, just like you will stand before God and give an account for what it is that you have been given. It's so hard to be envious when you're grateful for what you have. Hebrews 12, 28 says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The more gratitude that you have, the less that the ground underneath you is going to shake when problems come your way. I don't know about you, but man, I, I don't think we have as many earthquakes as people say we have in Oklahoma. I'll see that on the, the chit-chat or Facebook or whatever the case. Did you feel that? No, I didn't feel that. I feel like people are messing with me. That's what I feel. What, what are you talking about? Earthquake? No, I'm, I'm, did, did anybody feel the earthquake? Man, I don't know what you've been drinking. But there, the earth may have been moving, but it wasn't from an earthquake. The same way when you have a grateful heart and you live your life at the foot of the cross, when all of the things around the world are in upheaval, the ground beneath you stays solid. Because he is our anchor and he is our great hope, the author of Hebrews will go on to say, that anchors us to the reality and the truth that we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. There's gratitude that comes as an overflow of that. And then mourning not only shows us the grace of God and, and establishes a grateful heart, but mourning produces great spiritual growth. We, we grow out of that. There's great growth that comes as a result of us bringing our sins to the cross, finding that ground level, finding the comfort that comes and the gratitude that is established as a result. There's great growth that comes out of that. Ephesians 4, 15 through 16 speaks of this. It says, don't, don't fall for every deceitful scheme of the enemy where you get tossed around like waves, where you're so focused on everything else that you're being tossed around like waves. It says, let me give you some spiritual drama me. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly. Again, there's the unity. We find community that is built around the cross. Makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There's great spiritual growth when we come together and we use those words, me too. There's great spiritual growth that happens when we stop looking at each other as rivals, when we stop comparing our lives to one another, and we can be unified around the work within the kingdom of God to advance the kingdom of God. And we see each other as co-laborers. We see each other as co-workers and not as rivals. Then we build up the body, and the body is stronger, and the body grows, and it builds itself up in love. Now, ultimately... The greatest antithesis of envy is what we find in Mark's gospel, chapter 12, verses 30 through 31, where God's word tells us 
that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength, and we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are to love our neighbors, that the, the church body is being built up in love so that we can love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, sometimes we run into a lot of problems because we don't have self-love. We don't love ourselves. It's hard for us to love our neighbors because we're so insecure with who we are. And the enemy loves to use those insecurities to speak that envious thoughts into our lives. You know, I love the Apostle John. In, the, in John's Gospel, you know, he never refers to himself as John. You know how he refers to himself? The disciple that Jesus loved. That's how he viewed himself. The one that Jesus loved. You think about Peter. Peter was a brash individual. Peter was, man, he was going to, I'll die for you, Jesus. They, they come and try to get, I mean, he's the one chopping ears off. You know what I mean? He, he's ready, just whatever. Let's go. That's Peter. But yet a little girl comes to him by a campfire outside of Jesus' trial and says, you're one of them, ain't you? No. And he cowered down in fear. Every disciple that had lived three years of Jesus' earthly ministry with him, seeing all of the miracles, they abandoned him at the cross except for one, John. See, Peter was so concerned with telling Jesus how much he loved him. John was so focused on how much Jesus loved him. When you get in your heart that Jesus loves you, it'll take you all the way to the cross. While everybody else is cowering in an upper room, the love of Jesus will bring you to the very foot of the cross. You know, you can say the same thing about yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. And if you ever doubt that, you go take another look at the cross of Calvary and what he did for you on the cross. Now go love your neighbor as yourself as the one who is loved so dearly by Jesus that he would take the cat and eye tails on his back, the plucking of his beard out, being punched in his face, having to carry the instrument of death that will be used against him out of the city and up the hill to be nailed to. Now go love your neighbor just like that. What you will find great armor against the envy that the enemy will try to use in your life. I love how it ends. Matthew 20, 16 says, so the last will be first and the first last. Envy will tell us, go be first. And Jesus says, no, no, no. In my kingdom, it's the individuals that serve and give their all for others. They're first in my kingdom. All the selfish individuals that want to make it about them and what they don't have, they'll be last. May we combat envy by loving our neighbor as ourselves, donning the servant's towel around our waist, and spiritually cleansing the feet.